Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name's David Bowes. I'm the Executive Vice President of the Institute, and I'm happy to welcome you all here for our discussion on race and the state here at the end of Black History Month. In recent decades, it has seemed that racial progressivism was synonymous with the left, but it wasn't always that way, or maybe it's just that the left wasn't always synonymous with ever bigger government. Think of the pioneers in the fight for equality under the law. Tom Paine, William Lloyd Garrison, Frederick Douglass, all people who are on Cato's walls. And then there are people like Morefield Story, the first president of the NAACP, and the California publisher R.C. Hoyles, both of them staunch libertarians and vocal opponents of racial discrimination. But much of that history seems to be buried, and I hope that maybe this forum will be an occasion for reviving some of it. Libertarians would suggest that it is dangerous for any minority, racial, religious, ideological, or anything else, to expect government to be consistently on its side, perhaps especially a democratic government that is based on uh, the rule of the majority. I think minority groups ought to keep in mind what I call the second best argument for libertarianism, and that is that strictly limited government should at least be everyone's second choice. It's my first choice, but it ought to be everyone's second choice. You might like a government that enforces Catholic doctrine, but if you can't have that, your second choice ought to be a strictly limited government that protects everyone's right to live and worship according to his own conscience, including yours. You might prefer a government that takes from the rich and gives to the poor, but if you can't count on that, you ought to prefer a government that isn't empowered to take from anyone. So it's time now to turn the floor over to today's speakers. Uh, We'll begin with Bruce Bartlett. Bruce was a Treasury uh, official under the first President (coughs) Bush and a domestic policy advisor to President Reagan. He's also worked on Capitol Hill and for the Cato Institute. He's the author of books on Reaganomics and on supply-side economics and also the author of Imposter, How George W. Bush Bankrupted America and Betrayed the Reagan Legacy. Most relevant for today, he is the author of a new book, Wrong on Race, the Democratic Party's Buried Past, and there are copies of this outside. Um, We'll also be hearing today from Casey Lartig, who is a blogger, writer, radio commentator, and education analyst. He worked for the Cato Institute also a few years back and for Fight for Children. He was the co-editor of a book on school choice in urban America, and copies of that are also available. More recently, Casey was a talk show host on XM Radio until he got too controversial even for satellite radio and got fired an experience that he wrote up in the Washington Post under the title, Talk Radio Can't Handle the Truth. Please welcome Bruce Bartlett. Thank you, David. Um, As as he pointed out, my experience is mainly in the area of economics, and so writing a book about the race issue is uh, definitely something outside of my normal area of, of expertise. And uh, but I think uh, there, there's virtue to that. I think sometimes it's useful to come at an issue with fresh eyes, uh, without really a lot of experience in that area. Because, uh, as for example, when uh, Alexis de Tocqueville came to the United States, being a Frenchman, he observed certain things about Americans that maybe they were not really able to observe about themselves. Uh, and and so I think there are sometimes some insights to this. Uh, my my interest in this subject uh, was was probably I don't really remember precisely, but uh, I think I think it was during the Trent Lott affair, as you may remember. Uh, Lott was the Senate Majority Leader, and his colleague Senator Strom Thurmond of uh, South Carolina was retiring, and at a <coughs> uh, farewell party for Thurmond, Lott made uh, some comments saying, uh, you know. It would, have, it would have been a good idea if uh, Thurmond had won his election in 1948, uh, which, of course, was a, a racist campaign. Uh, he ran as a Dixiecrat. And, uh, and so uh, the, this was viewed as you know, praise for the, uh, the, the racist policies that, uh, that Thurmond favored back at, at that time. 
of course, he had long since repudiated those views. And, uh, and, and just as, for example, Robert C. Byrd has long uh, repudiated his uh, membership in the Ku Klux Klan, uh, but for some reason, uh, this blew up into a big uh, brouhaha, and uh, Lot was forced to give up his uh, leadership position. And it just seemed to me that this was, a, you know, a, a rather a double standard. I mean, here you have Robert Byrd, who still serves in the United States Senate, and who was not merely a, 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 a member of the Klan, but an organizer, a paid organizer for the Klan, and who personally uh, filibustered the Civil Rights Act of 1964 for over 14 hours. Uh, try talk, uh, even talk radio people don't talk for 14 straight hours, but, uh, but he did. And it just seemed very unfair that, uh, that Lott was singled out for making these comments uh, that were simply you know, fluff for a, a retiring colleague. And, uh, and so I think I, I, I was looking to write a column uh, pointing out some of the racist policies, activities of, uh, of Democrats uh, in the past, which everybody r- really knows, uh, at least in part. And, uh, and I, in the course of doing research, I just assumed that somebody had written a book about the Democratic Party's uh, racist past, and I was just astounded to discover that, that nothing on this topic had ever been written. Uh, the, the closest book I could find was by a fellow named O'Reilly, who wrote a book called Nixon's Piano, probably the worst title ever invented for, an idiotic, for, for a book. But anyway, uh, the, uh, so I, I started looking into this sort of casually, and I had some idea of maybe having a chapter in a book that I was thinking about writing at that time. But the more I got into it, the more interested in the subject uh, I, I became and the more uh, really valuable research I found, uh, which can all be uh, located in the, the footnotes. And, and, it, and, it, and I noticed that although there was a lot written on the general topic of the politics of race, it was always very narrowly focused. It was about particular people in particular places at particular times. And almost all of this material appears in very obscure academic journals and uh, university press books that probably only sold a few thousand copies. And, and it just, you know, so I started compiling this material, and, uh, and it just, uh, you know, eventually I had enough material for a book, so I decided to write one. And uh, the, uh, the, fir- the, the, the first chapter of the book I wrote uh, that, that really convinced me that there was some, something to do, uh, a, a book, uh, on this topic was the one I wrote about Woodrow Wilson. Now, I grew up in New Jersey, and uh, Woodrow Wilson was the governor of the state of New Jersey. I didn't know too terribly much about his life before that, uh, but I just assumed he was probably from the north. I didn't really know, but he was, in fact, born in Lynchburg, Virginia, spent most of his life growing up in Georgia and the Carolinas, and, uh, you know, was alive during uh, the Civil War and saw, uh, he was a child, but he saw uh, witnessed uh, General Sherman's uh, army march by his father's uh, church, and um, and so uh, and, and and when he became president, it became it was quite clear that he was a man of the South in in the sense of what that meant in those days, and uh, I was rather appalled uh, just to, to discover just what an incredible racist the man was. I mean, one of the very first things he did when he became president in 1913 was to institute comprehensive racial segregation throughout the entire federal civil service, uh, something which had never existed before. Blacks were put into separate buildings, into separate offices, and where that wasn't possible, they actually put up room dividers uh, to separate the black and the white workers uh, in, in, in the federal bureaucracy. And, and as far as I can tell, there was there was simply no basis for doing this other than racism. There was no there was never any explanation uh, that is Wilson never in his private papers or any place else never gave a public policy rationale for this. He just kept saying, "I think this is the right thing to do," or words to that effect. And um, and and a lot of uh, of other things happened during that period. Uh, I, I discovered this too late to put into the book, but uh, the uh, the old old executive office building where I once had an office, um, uh, they created separate washrooms for blacks and whites in that building during this time period. <coughs> and as some of you may know, that building 
housed a good chunk of the government uh, back in those days. One wing of the building was where the War Department was, and another wing of the building was where the Navy Department was, and the State Department was in another wing. Uh, but the Navy Department actually ran the building and maintained uh, the physical uh, plant in the building, and so they had administrative control of the building. And the person who signed the order creating separate washrooms and, and ordering people to use the appropriate one was none other than Franklin D. Roosevelt, who was an assistant secretary of the Navy under, uh, under Wilson's administration. And uh, another thing that, uh, that I found appalling was that when, uh, after Roosevelt got uh, polio and established the Warm Springs polio treatment facility down in Georgia, it was a segregated facility. Uh, no blacks were allowed. And even in the facility itself, the black staff and the white staff were, were kept uh, separate. And this was Franklin D. Roosevelt. And uh, another interesting thing that turned up in my research that I guess some people know but maybe have not thought about, but uh, when Roosevelt had his first opportunity to uh, appoint a, a, a member of the Supreme Court in 1937, he chose Senator Hugo Black of Alabama, uh, who was a life member of the Ku Klux Klan. And we know with this with absolute certainty because the Klan kept stenographic records of, of the meetings uh, that they held, uh, or at least in his particular chapter, or whatever they called them, uh, down in Alabama. And uh, it wasn't, although it, there had been rumors about Black's uh, membership, uh, Klan membership, uh, the, uh, it hadn't been documented. And uh, he uh, was already on the Supreme Court when the documentation came out. And the, only, and the reason it came out is because a reporter named Ray Spriggle from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette went down to Alabama and started asking around about it and discovered that uh, uh, Black's former law partner had been the head of the Klan in Birmingham or wherever it was he, was, he lived, and he had had a falling out with Black, and he, so he gave all these papers, and, and, and they reprinted them in the P Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. I think I might have been the, one of the first people to read all those old stories from 1937 in, in quite a few years. But anyway, after the story came out, uh, uh, Roosevelt was asked uh, about, about this, and he said, news to me, uh, what, you know, he gave a kind of a Bill Clintonish kind of answer. And uh, but uh, before he died, Hugo Black uh, disclosed in, in in a memorandum that was uh, in his papers that he had personally that when he went down to the White House to meet with President Roosevelt to uh, to uh, when as as is traditional uh, have lunch with him before his appoint his, uh, the announcement of his appointment, he personally told. Uh, Roosevelt that he had been a member of the Klan, and, and Roosevelt's answer, according to Black, was, don't worry about it, I have plenty of friends and supporters who are members. So, uh, you know, I think this, you know, this stuff is, 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 is interesting in and of itself, and there's a lot of other stuff in the book as well about the two co-founders of the Democratic Party, that is, by the, the party's own uh, statement, are uh, Thomas Jefferson and Andrew Jackson, both of whom owned hundreds of slaves. Uh, and one, and they weren't particularly good caretakers of their slaves either. It isn't like they were very genteel. You know, you're all part of the family. Uh, they were treated the way everybody else treated slaves back in those days. Uh, in one case, I know uh, one of uh, Jefferson's slaves uh, later told uh, some. Uh, uh, there was like an oral history uh, done some years after Jefferson's death, and he said he had more. Uh, had been given more lashes than he had fingers and toes. And in the uh, Jackson's case, there was one uh, a case where one of his slaves escaped, and he advertised uh, for the re uh, a reward for the return of the slave. And as a bonus, he said, whoever brings back the slave, uh, I will give him $10 for every 100 lashes you this is are, are given to the to the slave up to three hundred three hundred lashes. My goodness, and thirty dollars was a heck of a lot of money back in eighteen thirty. I can tell you. So so the, the I, I think this stuff is worth knowing. But the real reason I wrote uh, I wrote about this stuff is because I really want think the Republican Party ought to be more inclusive. That is to reach out more 
for black votes. And I think there's a number of reasons for this. One is simply uh, that it's the right thing to do. I think that uh, our great parties should uh, try to uh, represent all the people of the country, including those that don't vote for them. And and I think uh, Republicans have been uh, extremely complacent about uh, uh, the black vote for a long time. And I think that this is really bad for black people because uh, if the Republicans are not going after their votes, then the Democrats can completely take them for granted. And the result is that, 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 that they're kind of left left hanging with neither party having a real interest in their concerns. And I think that's bad. I think if it was, if there was more competition, if uh, instead of Republicans getting, say, 10 percent of the black vote, if they were getting 20 or 30 percent, I think this would have enormously positive uh, benefits uh, to the black community. Now, you know, we can talk about the things that that, that might or uh, uh, might help material uh, materially uh, uh, people in the black community. Uh, but insofar as government has the power to do anything in that area, uh, and uh, and maybe what they should be doing is getting rid of some of the things they're doing. But any in, in any event, the part neither party is going to take any actions unless they think it's in their political interest to do so. So, I think it's very important for the the the, bene- the well-being of African Americans to have both parties competing for their votes. So I figure, how better to get Republicans to read a book about the race issue? than to write one that attacks Democrats, right? So, so that was a part of, of what the book was all about. And, and at the end, I talk about a few things that are uh, a political strategy that I think uh, might help the Republican Party. And one point is that their, their immigration policy is clearly not favorable to getting the Hispanic vote. I mean, all the... Uh, the, uh, the the heart the base of the Republican Party is extremely anti illegal immigrant. In fact, I think they're actually anti immigrant. They don't say that, but uh, but the, I think that in in reading the rhetoric of them uh, of of Republicans and uh, people in the Republican base is they really don't distinguish between the two. So that's going to push Hispanics. What, there aren't all that many, but there's uh, I think. Bush got 30 or 40 percent of the uh, the Hispanic vote in 2000, and I think he even did a little better in 2004. But they're 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 clearly going to reduce that vote total, and they're going to have to replace those votes with something. Now, as it turns out, uh, the black community tends to be favorable to the Republican view on immigration. Uh, If you look at polls where they ask people, you know, do you think illegal immigrants are stealing American jobs? a high percentage of, of, of African-Americans will say yes. Uh, and so, so, there's, so, that, so, so it's sort of one of these cases where if you have lemons, all, you might as well make lemonade. And uh, you know, I'm not defending uh, the anti-immigrant policy. I'm just saying if this is, as a political calculation, if this is what your policy is going to be, then you might as well reach out to the people who, who are favorable to that position. So I think that that plus the the maturing of the generation or generation or two that has been born since the civil rights revolution of the mid-1960s creates a little bit more of an open climate, I think, in the black community that might be a little bit more receptive to Republican outreach if the Republicans make the effort to do it. And finally, I talk a little bit, uh, I throw out the idea of reparations. And uh, as, as because I think the Republicans have to put something on the table. And I thought about this quite a bit, and I do think there's a, there's a, I know this is a very controversial view among conservatives, but I don't really think it ought to be con- controversial among libertarians because the basic my basic idea here is that the slaves had something very important stolen from them. And a basic principle of, of law and of libertarian views is, you know, theft, uh, that if something is stolen, it has to be given back. And uh, and, and at the end of, of the Civil War, uh, we stopped enslaving uh, uh, the, the, the Africans, or I guess, I guess they weren't quite African-Americans at that time, but anyway, the, uh, we, the, they, we stopped hurting the slaves, but we didn't make them whole. We didn't give them back what had been stolen from them, their labor, their their humanity uh, and and it's just a terrible tragedy of history that uh, we didn't give them all forty acres and a mule 
uh, back in 1865 when it could have been easily done. Uh, but nevertheless, the fact is that that debt is still there. It's owed to somebody. And just because it was a, a long time ago doesn't change the basic principle. I mean, you can pick up the art section of the New York Times, and almost every day there's some story about somebody finding some artwork that was stolen from some Jew in Germany back in 1935, or or there, the, there's, the, the Greece is always making a big campaign to get back the Elgin marbles, with, which have been in the British Museum for hundreds of years. And so it doesn't really matter. I mean, the basic principle is if, if something's been stolen, you got to give it back. And so I think that there is a debt uh, that, that is owed to African Americans, and, 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 and some form of reparations, I think, is justifiable. And I think that this, if this were used as a political framework around which some policies could be put together of, of a, that would be in the Republican playbook, uh, things like uh, vouchers for education, enterprise zones, and perhaps some other policies, and put it under this rubric of reparations, I think it would be very useful and, and, and would also be a way of getting rid of some of the existing racial preference policies that clearly are not working. Uh, affirmative action had, a, had, had good intentions, but it, it's turned into a system that uh, is uh, of quotas, and, and other pe- people know the, uh, the problems with this. And, but I think it's wrong to, to do, as some conservatives want to do, to say, let's just get rid of affirmative action, but we're not going to put anything back in its place. We're just going to... So it's, again, it's sort of you're taking away something, but you're not giving anything back. And I think that if you had a, 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 a reparations policy, then you could make it into a package deal and say, okay, this is in return for getting rid of affirmative action, minority set-asides in government contracting and things of that sort. And I think that's the only way you can do this politically. I think that it's just not uh, viable to try to pass a law in Congress that would uh, abolish affirmative action. That's just not going to happen. So I think you have to give something back in return. So so I view this as a political strategy for, for Republicans to... Uh, reach out for the black vote, and 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 I, uh, I think they should do it, and I and I hope they will. Although obviously, if Obama's the uh, nominee this year, uh, the Republicans going to do even worse in the black community than than they normally do. But there's always the chance that Hillary will snatch the nomination out from under him, and you could have a, a, a very large number of very very disaffected uh, Obama supporters out there who uh, who are, might be open to. Uh, and receptive to to voting for a Republican uh, to uh, sort of get even. So anyway, uh, that's sort of what the book is about, and uh, you know we can get into more of this in the Q and A. Thank you. Thank you, Bruce. <clears throat> and now, please welcome Casey Lartig. Okay, I'm famous for getting fired. Now, whenever I speak anywhere, people mention the XM radio thing, and uh, it's kind of strange to be famous for that. Now, I have some comments on the book, but I'll wait for the Q&A. I don't have a book, so I will answer the questions that were in the invitation that were sent out. Because uh, a lot of D.C. events, you'll get an invitation to something, you go there, and then the speakers won't even address the things that were in the invitation that got you to come out to the event. So the first question is, is government more likely to be a friend or adversary of minority groups? The quick answer is that that is a deceivingly difficult question for a lot of blacks. But the the answer will be that it's an adversary, but recently it's been a friend and a tool that, that a lot of blacks will use. Has it been liberals, conservatives, or libertarians who have been the most consistent defenders of everyone's rights? I'm going to answer libertarians with an explanation. And what does history suggest will be the best public policy for racial minorities in the 21st century? I'm going to say that it's the same as in the past, freedom. Now, let me try to do it. Is government more likely to be a friend or adversary of minority groups? Now, this is a tough question, and I'm going to start off with something that Michelle Obama said recently. She said that for the first time in her adult life, she feels proud to be an American. 
Now, I think that there's this kind of conflict going on with a lot of blacks, especially a lot of Democrats, but I think a lot of blacks overall, where they have these kind of conflicting feelings about being proud to be an American. Now, in the mid-'90s, there was a lot of talk about um, the different reactions that blacks had to the O.J. Simpson verdict that compared to a lot of whites, that a lot of blacks watched different TV shows and a lot of whites will watch. When people talk about America, history, for example, the 1950s, that it was a sleepy time in America, there are a lot of good things that happened, a lot of blacks will refer to the Brown versus Board of Education and the resistance to it. They'll talk about Little Rock and the reaction to that. They'll talk about, for example, um, um, uh, like Birmingham, that it was called Bombingham by a lot of blacks. So there's this thing where there's, um, you know, we can be proud to be Americans, and yet there's always this kind of feeling of but. And W.E. Du Bois wrote about this a century ago where he talked about the two-ness that a lot of black Americans feel, where they're both Americans but also Negro, and they have these different feelings within them. But a lot of whites, I think especially a lot of conservatives, wondered, you know, Michelle Obama, you know, Princeton, Harvard, millionaire, you could be the next first lady, and you're talking about mixed feelings. You know, where's the conflict? And I think that's why there's a, a, a kind of a, a th that question is a little difficult because for, is the government a friend or an adversary? As I said, I think there's this kind of feeling that it's been both. Now, for me, I'll be clear. I look at the government as an adversary. You can pull a gun on me and tell me what to do. It's hard for me to consider you to be a friend. It's kind of a strange relationship. You know, I just want to go have a drink and, you know, you're telling me what I need to do. Because with friends, I just give notification of what I'm going to do. I don't have to get permission from them for, uh, about things. Now, I'll tell you that even though the government has done these good things recently, I don't feel thankful for them. Because it's something that the government was supposed to do, kind of like Chris Rock thing, is supposed to have done that to begin with. The idea that I'm thankful that the government took its boot off the, uh, off the necks of blacks and, and I'm supposed to say, thank you for that, friend. Now, let me give an example of this. Loving versus Virginia. This was the 1967 case that overruled the laws against interracial marriage. And I'm thinking, were people supposed to have felt thankful that the government finally said, we're going to stop intervening into the lives of consenting adults and let them marry the people that they want to marry. It's something like Malcolm X said, you stick a, a knife in a man's back nine inches, take it out six, and say that's progress. Well, it's not progress when you just give me back a little of my rights, but not all of them. So the idea of am I supposed to be thankful? When I hear about a Supreme Court case where people actually get their rights back, instead of me thinking, like, I'm thankful, I'm saying, like, well, damn, finally. You know, the court has realized that people have the right of locomotion. People have the right to determine things on their own. Now, a lot of people will say, you know, Casey Lartig, he's controversial. You know, he used to work at the Cato Institute. You know, he doesn't speak for blacks. I will tell you this. There are a lot of angry and disgruntled blacks who absolutely hate the government. Okay, and some people don't believe me when I say this. A lot of it might be based on my experience hosting a talk show on XM. I, I, I listen to black talk radio very often. Obviously, I know black people, related to them, all that kind of thing. Um, but every day when I was a host on XM 169, the power, the only national black talk network, by the way, as they're proud of saying, every day there's a conspiracy theory there's something about, you know, the government is doing this, the government is doing that. The big conspiracy of the day, I'm sorry, sorry, of the moment is that President Bush is going to cancel the elections in November, declare uh, martial law, and just remain in office until he dies, I guess. <laughs> there are respected black intellectuals, politicians, activists who believe that and this is why I got fired from XM, that there is a, this document called Memorandum 46 written by Jimmy Carter's national security advisor with a plan to undermine black leadership domestically and internationally and that the plan is in effect 
as we speak. I don't think a friend would have such a plan. There are many black Americans who believe that AIDS was cooked up in a government laboratory by government researchers with the intent of eliminating black people. Guns, drugs, liquor stores are all strategically placed in black neighborhoods with the purpose of eliminating black people so they're going to finish the job that the Klan couldn't do. Question, is that what friends are for? So when you're asking, are, 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 is the government a friend or adversary? On the one hand, a lot of people have a lot of resentment of the government, and yet they still look to it for, for help. Now, see, government to me is like the guest from hell. You know, it won't leave, tells you what to do, tells you where you can go, who you can associate with, and gets right into people's lives. Why still despite this kind of hatred and resentment of the government, do 90% of blacks still vote for the Democrat Party? Um, on my radio show, my, my co-host was a gentleman named Elliot Morgan. A couple of years ago, we were having a conversation, a completely different context, and he mentioned this Woody Allen movie where you had these two characters, uh, two ladies in a nursing home. One woman says, the food is terrible. The second one says, in such small portions. Right? And unfortunately, a lot of people, when they look at government, it's the same kind of thing. The government is terrible. They're doing this. They're doing that. And only if we could get more of it by the party. Now, I'll be clear. With Republicans, I don't think it's quite that, you know. I mean, they're still saying the government is terrible. The food is terrible. But we'll just have half of what the Democrats are having. I think libertarians, the food is terrible. We'll privatize it. With socialists, the food is terrible. You're under arrest. <laughs> All right, now, I think just, just to review that government is more of an adversary than a friend when um, you're talking about black Americans. And yet people still have this kind of kinship because they, you know, they see that for the first time in the 1960s, whatever, as Mr. Bartlett outlined, whatever may have happened before, for the first time they saw the government come to their aid. So there's still this feeling that it is a friend. I don't feel that way, but that's the way the explanation goes. Now, the second question, has it been liberals, conservatives, or libertarians who have been the most consistent defenders of everyone's rights? Okay, so this is who provides the best defense. And I would answer libertarians. Now, libertarians haven't really been in political office to have their principles compromised or to have people trying to bite them off, but they will argue for your rights financially and personally. So you're able to have control over your life, whereas you know, liberals and conservatives might split the difference. The problem for libertarians is that people are not just looking for defense. They're looking for offense when they look to the government. People are looking for free stuff. On the one hand, libertarians are saying equality of opportunity, and liberals are standing there with the $50 bill. Isn't this more attractive for you? And as usual, the Republicans will split the difference. Here's a 20 and a 5. Now, who do you think is going to win that popularity contest? Okay, people offering you cash versus people offering the opportunity for you to, to do the job well and to stick after work and to work really hard. Now, what I like about libertarians is that I can say, count me out, and they'll say, okay, with Republicans and conservatives and Democrats and liberals, I love a lot of you, uh, but the reality is that I have to follow you around like you're a shoplifter. Okay, I've got to read the newspaper to find out what the latest giveaway or takeaway is going to be. I'll wake up one morning, there's some new plan, and I've been included, and I don't even know what it's about. Which is why, with libertarians... All I have to do is check the Constitution. If Ron Paul, through some miracle that not even he believes can happen, <laughs> became president, I would not have to worry about the latest giveaway, the latest takeaway. I could actually live in a libertarian society and give up my right to vote because I don't have to worry about um, them ripping me off all the time. So to summarize, who is the most consistent defender of rights? I would say libertarians. But the challenge is that people are looking for offense. 
Now, for the last question, what does history suggest will be the best public policy for racial minorities in the 21st century? As I said, freedom. But let me start this with a question. Why did we have Jim Crow in this country, and why did it remain until, well, some say the 50s, the 60s, depending on when you think it actually ended? Uh, now, Bruce Bartlett says that, you know, obviously Democrat governors and legislatures, that they passed these laws and enforced them, that uh, Plessy versus Ferguson was allowed to stand for almost six decades. Uh, liberals will say it was racism, and obviously there's something to that, too. But the important thing is that Jim Crow could not have survived in a country based on capitalism without government control. Uh, now, a little while ago, Thomas Sowell wrote a great column right after Rosa Parks died, and he talked about this, this very issue, that it was the private companies that fought against Jim Crow. They fought it when it, the laws were being written. They fought it and dragged ass when the um, laws were in place. And then, see, I, I talk like I'm on XM Radio still. Okay. Uh, and they fought it and tried to get the laws taken off the books. Drivers on public transportation will be arrested when they refuse to force black um, riders to, to the back of the bus. Companies were prosecuted and attacked by the government. So it was the government that kept Jim Crow in place. So what I say is that limited government would have been better off for blacks at that time, as I say, it would be better now. Now, um, I think was interesting. One of the, a lot of interesting things about Mr. Bartlett's book, but he talks about the Democrat Party's racist, racism being hidden, and I think we have to think about it also. Not just the Democrat parties and that the Republican Party has some, but it was about government. That it was government racism that's almost been forgotten. Government just kind of turning a blind eye to things that were happening. So, what's the public policy for the twenty first century? Obviously, I think a lot of people will say that everyone needs to be treated equally like Americans. And unfortunately, people always realize they can get benefits from the government. So that's going to be tough. A couple of things I'll throw out. One is benign neglect, as suggested by Daniel Patrick Moynihan when he was Nixon's um, urban affairs advisor. And that is that let's just kind of like suspend all the race talk and just focus on people actually working. Um, now, he was denounced for it. People thought he was saying just give up on the cities. Now, if people don't like it from Moynihan, it might be more palatable hearing it from Frederick Douglass. There is that famous speech that he gave when he was asked what to do with black people, and people were always asking him that kind of thing. And he answered with, everybody has asked the question, what shall we do with the Negro? I have had but one answer from the beginning, do nothing with us. You're doing, what the, you're doing with us has already played the mischief with us. Do nothing with us. Now, I say that would have been a good policy then, and it would be a good policy now. Thank you very much. Okay, let's open this up to questions or discussion. Um, we'll have a microphone, I think, to bring around to you. Um, so any questions? Yes, right here. Um, I'm Francois Sims. Um, I would like to uh, make a couple points um, about the idea of, yes, uh, government conspiracies. Um, it's not only African-Americans who make those statements. Um, I'd like to bring up two examples of government um, actually being um, uh, uh, bad for uh, African-Americans. Um, I'd like to bring up the uh, Tuskegee experiments, for example. Um, and uh, I forgot the second one. Um, uh, oh, and Hurricane Katrina, um, uh, the aftermath there. Um, also, um, I, would you also agree that the uh, Voting Rights Act was essentially unconstitutional because the states control voting um, in elections, not the federal government? Okay, I'll take the thing about conspiracy theories. Okay, the problem with a lot of the conspiracy theories, and there have been things that have happened, no doubt about it. The problem is that now for a lot of people, anything is believable. 
Okay, because some bad things happened. Now people will say, well, the government is, you know, has some crazy plan. There are people who will believe it automatically. So I don't mean to say that there aren't things that that go on, because obviously Tuskegee was one of those things. I mean, there are others out there. So, but the point is that I think a lot of people now will accept anything. Yeah. Okay. Over here. On Scoggins, I would just like to uh, refer to something that uh, Bruce Bartlett said when he talked about Trent Lott. I think one of the reasons why it was such a such an uproar is because if you recall, that was right around the time that the Republican Party was making concerted efforts to try to attract more blacks into the party, and I think myself and several others, even though um, I probably wouldn't have reacted as much to what Trent Lott said because I understood the context. But I think that when you consider we have the, we have the mainstream media and uh, in this particular town, you know, uh, Republicans are not going to be probably given their just due. I think that it was such a controversy and the way Trent Lott at the, afterwards, he tried to clean it up by going on talk shows and he had audiences with some blacks that he never had in this 30 some years of uh representation down in mississippi and i just think that is just the way he went about doing it and it's the way the republicans go about doing many things when it comes to dealing with minorities even today and i think that we sometimes play in the hands or the party plays in the hands of of um i would say the democratic party because right now the it's profitable to be um, for the Democrats to exploit racism. So unless Republicans will figure out a way how not to uh, fall into that, because I think sometimes by just being silent when you're being called a racist, sort of uh, you can sort of play in the hands of uh, the people who don't, you know. Well, there's certainly no question that the Republican Party throughout virtually its entire history has been extraordinarily inept in dealing with uh, the race uh, problem. Uh, even in the era when blacks overwhelmingly voted Republican from the period after the Civil War up until the 1930s, uh, they, the Republicans pretty much ignored them because, for the same reason the Democrats ignore them now, which is to say that they, had, they, they figured they had no place else to go, and so they simply took, took those uh, votes for granted and didn't and after 1875 they didn't really make any con- too many serious efforts to try to redress problems such as lynching or the uh, widespread uh, denial of voting rights uh, in the south and things of that sort and they should have done a lot more but on the other hand the supreme court uh, tied their hands to to a great extent you had uh the civil rights cases in the 1880s and uh, of course, Plessy versus Ferguson and a number of other court cases that severely limited the government's ability to uh, take uh, an active role in redressing uh, racial uh, problems. And, and I think that's a very important thing to remember because you, you really couldn't pass any, any legislation uh, dealing with civil rights because it was viewed as being unconstitutional. And in fact, uh, there were a lot of people who said the, the, the 1964 Civil Rights Act was unconstitutional because it was basically a reenactment of the Civil Rights Act of 1875, which the court had previously found unconstitutional. But, of course, the courts changed its philosophy, most particularly in Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, but nevertheless, Barry Goldwater was among the people who voted against the Civil Rights Act of 64 because he, he had been told by... William Rehnquist, among other people, that the law was unconstitutional. So there's a, there, there's a lot of problems that the Republicans have. And, but on the other hand, I think they've done a lot that they've never gotten any credit for. For example, uh, Eisenhower did a lot of things. He passed the first Civil Rights Act since uh, Reconstruction in 1957 and another one in 1960. He, he appointed uh, uh, every member of the Supreme Court that he appointed during his time was liberal on civil rights uh, by the the meaning of the term in in that day. Uh, It was Richard Nixon who created affirmative action. Now, you can agree or disagree with that, whether it was a good policy, uh, but it's kind of, uh, but 
yet Nixon is viewed as, as essentially a racist because he had the, the evil Southern strategy. Uh, but if you think about it, the, there really wasn't a Southern strategy for the simple reason that George Wallace was running in 1968. He got all the, the, the Southern strategy votes, uh, not Nixon. He ran a very centrist campaign and, uh, and, act, and actively campaigned uh, for, for uh, black votes in both 1960 and 1968. Uh, but uh, a lot of work needs to be done, and the first thing that needs to be done by the Republicans is simply to decide they want to try to get black votes and to reach out to the black community to where they can find common interests in, uh, in the churches and the businesses and, and other places and create a dialogue and maybe something will come out of that. Okay, let's take a question over here and then down here in the front row. Hello, uh, <clears throat> Merrill Smith. Not not so much a question as an observation. When trying to reconcile the uh, propensity to believe uh, ostensibly outlandish conspiracy theories uh, with demands for government largesse, I was thinking you were going to go for another, a different uh, Woody Allen joke, the one where he says, you know, my cousin tells the psychiatrist, my cousin thinks he's a chicken. And the psychiatrist, well, why don't you bring your cousin in here? He says, well, we need the eggs. <laughs> so... Uh, but I, but seriously, I, I think uh, part of um, uh, conspiracy theories, which I've got a little bit of thought to, is that um, people are not insincerely posturing. In a sense, like if I say I think there is a conspiracy, uh, uh, that means no matter how – in fact, the more outlandish it is, what I'm really doing is I'm telling you how opposed to the government I am. I am even more opposed to the government than you are because I will believe X theory, which is more outlandish than anything you will believe. Um, just a thought. Um. Okay. Now, uh, let me just say one more thing about conspiracy theories I, I should have mentioned a little earlier. They could not survive with just belief by black people. I mean, you go on the Internet, um, the emails that you get, a lot of non-race conspiracy theories. The conspiracy theories that I'm talking about are the ones that blacks are being targeted in particular because of their race. They're trying to eliminate black people. Uh, they're putting stuff in the food. There's a conspiracy theory that, uh, and this one goes back to the 70s, that Kentucky Fried Chicken is laced with an ingredient that makes black men go sterile. Okay, I would just say that that has failed. Okay, <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Now, I mean, there there's just a whole host of conspiracy theories, but I think that what's the danger, as I said a little earlier, that I could just make up anything. The government today has this big plan that they're going to bomb Detroit. I'm telling you, on Black Talk Radio, they'll be making defense plans in response. Well, they did bomb Philadelphia. Well, okay, well, see, <laughs> now see, that's the other thing. Because the government has done things, anything becomes believable. And that's what happens with a lot of these conspiracy theories, though. Anyway. Okay. Thank you. Um, I, I wanted to ask Mr. Bartlett um, why we're not talking about the Republicans simply using a more principled appeal to liberty um, just in general as opposed to trying to replace uh, certain racial preference policies with new racial preference policies and expecting a different sort of result. The, the one quote um, that, that I'm very fond of that I didn't hear here today uh, was Martin Luther King's famous phrase uh, about the content of our character. Um, and it, it seems to me that a fundamental problem for the, for the conservative movement is that it lacks that sort of principled uh, position that, that you would find in a, a Barry Goldwater, for example, where we're talking fundamentally about individual liberty and personal freedom and, and lifting up a person in, in general by permitting them to be free. I think that 
that that sort of thing does resonate with someone. And if, if there's any evidence of it at all, it's the constant calls for hope and change by Barack Obama, accompanied by not much else, which seemed to resonate particularly well uh, with a number of people. I have to wonder if there, well, maybe there was a candidate like that uh, that, didn't, that didn't work out too well this year. But I have to wonder if that was more so a platform of the, of the conservative movement, if that wouldn't be um, something that's palatable. And one, one other short thing, you mentioned, I guess, your support for reparations. I guess who pays and who receives? I'm a first-generation American myself. My, my family is from the Caribbean. They were certainly enslaved there. Um, I'm not certain if, if you know, all taxpayers pay into a, a fund that sends checks to everyone of a particular hue. It just it seems that, that that would be a little bit difficult to pull off. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Well, uh, the, uh, to take the second question first, it's obviously a very difficult thing and maybe administratively impossible, even if everybody agrees that it's a good idea. And I deliberately didn't sketch out any details of, of what I thought. I, I was getting more at the idea that if something has been stolen from somebody, it ought to be given back. And, and that's just really about as far as I went in terms of, of that. Now, as far as the other thing is concerned, um, my, my book is not about philosophy. It's just a straightforward history. And I don't even get into uh, economics or, or any of these other kinds of issues. And the reason I didn't is because there's lots of books out there already by people like Tom Sowell and Walter Williams and other people that talk about the, uh, the, 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 the bad effects of, of government policies on minorities. And I didn't see any reason to, to cover that same ground uh, again. And secondly, I think Republicans have been making the argument for a long time uh, to, for a more you know, free market approach to uh, and, and a, a more freedom-type approach to uh, minority affairs, and it's clearly not worked. It's, they're not getting the, – I mean, Republicans have, been, have only averaged 10 percent of the black vote since 1964. And so it seems to me that – However desirable that po- that policy may be, it has simply failed uh, politi- the political test. And so I think something – I'm just putting forward an idea for a different strategy. And, and, and my idea of reparations could encompass some uh, uh, freedom-oriented policies. I think enterprise zones is a, is a, is a, a policy that is uh, consistent with both a libertarian approach and can be – you know, put into to a kind of a, a reparations package, and and uh, so I think so. I, I, it's really just a question of political strategy, is what I'm getting at. Is you, you have to find something that works, and what they're doing right now clearly is not working. That's I'm saying. Let's do something different. Yeah, I want I want to say a couple of things about the reparations thing because I'm I'm not a blanket opponent of the idea. Uh, it's more along the lines of you know, Jonathan Ross wrote an article a couple of years ago, I think in, I think in Reason Magazine, where he argued that blacks don't deserve reparations for slavery, but for Jim Crow. There could be an argument that the people who are alive and actually suffered at the hands of government, that they could be given, you know, some form of compensation. Now, there's still some logis- uh, logistical things that would be, you know, tough to figure out because you have to argue that I wasn't allowed to go to this white school. I had to go to this school and here's how it uh, affected me. Uh, now I'll admit, I like the idea from Alan Keyes a couple of years ago. He argued that blacks should be tax free for a generation or two. All right. Now I will go for almost any excuse to live tax free but see, what I really like about it is that it's no longer talking about because, you know, your ancestors went through this, so you should get some money. It's more of that because of my own labor now, for whatever reason, the government doesn't want me to pay taxes, then I don't have to. Now, the problem, I think, with enterprise zones and this kind of package is that um, unless it's something that specifically is targeted to blacks, and that blacks are the only ones who are going to get, I don't know, a check or some type of benefit, I think there's still going to be a lot of opposition to it. Um, I mean, who's going to cut the deal and who's going to receive the deal? I mean, it just it seems that, that that's going to be like a tough challenge. And I think the other thing about it that 
it would not be well received because it's it's a it's a it's a get out the vote tool and strategy that is not saying that blacks deserve reparations It's more like blacks are here. We want their votes. What can we do to buy their votes? Well, let's do the kind of reparations package and then we can get their votes. I think it would be more appealing to people if you have Republicans saying, look, blacks deserve this and we're going to find a way to get it to them. Okay, right here and then right here. We'd like it for the taping. Hi, I'm, I'm with Comedics, and um, I recently went to an event um, that was sponsored by Charles Rangel regarding the black magic. I'm not sure everybody heard about that. But one of the things that's, that's happening is that they're reopening the case of the Orangeburg massacre. I'm not sure everybody knows about the massacre there, where several thousand um, um, college black students were killed based upon them um, just doing their equal rights, you know, protesting civil rights um, for their rights to be able to sit into sit in Senate counters and be able to vote and all that. But they were slaughtered, basically slaughtered, and it's being opened. And I think with Republicans, the problem that I find is that they don't care. I don't see that. I don't see the word care, and I don't see the. I don't hear the word awareness, and things like that show me that the Republicans care. They can bring back issues that were silently erased. That is where we, whereas Black America, we can start hearing what they have to say. But I don't hear the word care, and I think Blacks we find ourselves in an animal farm quote. You know, some people are equal, and some some more equaler. You know, um, so I, I just find that. Um, with that being said, I, I just like to see the Republicans, because I, I like both sides. I like everybody. <laughs> but the word care does not come out and does not come to me as, as, as a black American. And, um, and if, not, if no one knows about the Orangeburg, especially our young people here, please look into it. I mean, Charles Rangel is reopening the case because it has been pushed under the table. So. Well, I do agree that the Republicans don't care very much uh, about the race issue. Uh, I think they're not r- racist. They're just inept. Uh, and I think that uh, an effort needs to be made to cr- for a dialogue. Uh, Republicans have to go into the black community and talk <laughs> to, the, to the people there. And one of the problems we have, uh, I didn't really get, I didn't get into into the book because I didn't have time to research it, is the, the problem we have with the uh, the way the Voting Rights Act operates is it creates black only districts in Congress, and the result is that black politicians don't have to reach out for white votes, and whites don't have to reach out for black votes, at least at the House level. Uh, but nevertheless, you still have governors and senators who represent larger constituencies, and, uh, and, and Republicans ought to be uh, at least trying to, to understand uh, what is going on in the black community uh, and, and try, and, you know, my idea of reparations obviously is not going anywhere in this crowd, but uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe there's some That's other easy. policies, uh, but I think it's not enough to go around saying, Let's get rid of affirmative action. Let's get rid of the minimum wage. Let's get rid of everything we're doing right now that, you know, for good, uh, is at least designed to help black people and do nothing in return. I think you've got to at least make uh, some effort to empathize and, and show that you care in some way, shape, or form. And, uh, and if my ideas don't work, you know, try let's try some others. But... I would get back to what I said earlier. Whatever they're doing now is not working, so they got to do something else. Yeah, I, I don't think Republicans will really have a chance at the black vote until one of those stroke of the pen things that's done by the president, that's uh, by a Republican party president, that's just dramatic and cannot be denied. Um, and it's kind of like the the the, the JF. I mean, because you actually talk about it in the book, the, the the phone call the JFK made that it was something that was just kind of flashy. And didn't really make a, much of a difference, but compared to Eisenhower, who did not want to call um, Coretta Scott King, compared to Nixon, who I guess kind of hesitated and ended up not doing it, that it won't be until there's something just dramatic. Um, 
even like the, the hearings and all, I, I don't think that will do it because that's still something that Re- Charlie Rango is going to take all the credit for that. I mean, Republicans try to join up. It's going to be like, you know, Johnny come lady. I mean, you're, we're not going to really take you seriously. So I don't, uh, so maybe the reparations thing, as I said, you know, I've got some, you know, concerns about it, the support, some possibilities, but until there's something that's just so dramatic and overwhelming and that Republicans just push for. And, but they got to be careful because Democrats just seem to be good and just like jumping out in front and taking credit of stuff. Even when, you know, even like the, 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 um, the voting on the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. I mean, a higher percentage of Republicans might have voted for it, but still, it looks like only Democrats support it now the way the history goes. So it would have to be just something overwhelming, the old stroke of the pen. Okay, right there. Thank you. Um, I'd like to address this to both of you. Based on the history of the civil rights movement, uh, African Americans, blacks, where are we today when you talk about the Republican Party doesn't care? What about the internal dissension or strife within the African American community? And have the Democrats really been that good to the blacks, or are they buying their votes and this is something the Republican Party has to do as well to get them on board. As for reparations, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how you. I don't know how you'd enforce that or find that out. But um, is the Republican Party? And I will say I'm an independent. I don't know of any libertarians that are in office right now, but uh, and will ever be. But let's look at the internal dissension or disagreements within the black community and their cry now the democrats have always taken us for granted so we'll vote for them but the republicans don't care so where are they now what would you do how would you handle it and what if we do have the first african-american president of the united states well one thing that would be useful is uh, for republicans would simply to be have more have more data on what black people think about things, whatever. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, I think the R Republican National Committee ought to, you know, expend a, a considerable sum of money and hire pollsters and uh, do focus groups and uh, spend a, a considerable amount of time and effort finding out whether the black community is monolithic or where their their views may differ regionally. Uh, uh, I mean, we know that in general, people who live in cities have different views about things than people who live in the country, and people in the north are different than the south and the west, and uh, people have uh, different uh, views depending on uh, their income levels. Uh, we know that there's a growing black middle class. Uh, uh, do, their, do their views tend to converge with those of whites of the same income level, or don't they? I don't know. Uh, but uh, clearly there's a data problem that... Uh, Republicans have. I think Democrats just sort of know some of this stuff intuitively. Uh, Republicans clearly don't. So they have to substitute, you know, with research and analysis to try to find out what they need to know. And and I don't know what that will show. I have no idea. Uh, But one thing I talk about in the book, for example, is is one area they could reach out for is that uh, blacks... uh, tend to vote, uh, uh, invest in the stock market much less than whites do, you know, adjusted for income. Uh, blacks have a tendency to save uh, uh, less and to save in very, very conservative investments, passbook savings accounts, this sort of thing, rather than taking more risks uh, by investing in the stock market. And, you know, as you know, there's a huge premium to investing in the stock market. And you compound that over, you know, 40 years of putting money into an IRA, it's going to make a huge difference. So one simple idea, and we also know from polling data that people who invest in the stock market tend to vote more Republican more than people who don't. So just getting black people to invest more in the stock market is like a win-win situation. There may be other things of that sort uh, that uh, where uh, 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 it's really more just public relations, you know, it doesn't even require legislation. Uh, where they could help themselves and help black people at the same time. I don't know. Casey, yeah. that question was pretty much <laughs> sum up the the theme of the whole event, so I'll, I'll let you end it here. Oh, okay. Pressure now. All right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, actually, I, I don't 
I mean, like taking, I mean, doing the polling and all that kind of thing. I don't think blacks are monolithic ideologically. I mean, you know, I mean, especially there are a lot of, I mean, there's this thing, conservative blacks, black conservatives. I mean, you got a lot of blacks on religious issues who, you know, could fit right in with Republicans. You know, he mentioned um, like the immigration issue, that there's a lot of common ground. I'm concerned about that particular common ground. I, I wish they would, could unite on freedom instead of, you know, trying to block people from coming into the country. Um, and, and maybe just the, the uh, ideological thing might be big government versus huger government. I mean, but um, I think this issue of care is overrated. That um, it's like, do you want the party that's going to take care of you or the party that doesn't care about you. I mean, the welfare state, how is that working out? You know, I mean, they cared so much for blacks. I don't think that was such a good deal after all. Um, The message that I try to give to folks when I talk is the Civil Rights Act passed four decades ago. It's time to get your act together. And you can't spend so much time worried about the government and what they're doing because if you can't read, <laughs> there's not much that uh, a government program can do to help you. Now, if, if you can read, at least you won't be stupid and you can understand the things that are happening to you. But I think the important thing is not to be so concerned about the government and make sure that you at least do things to prepare yourself in this life so you can live a good life. All right. With that, I want to thank Bruce Bartlett and Casey Lartig. Thanks to you all of you for coming. And I invite you upstairs to buy a book and uh, have a sandwich with us.